Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented on the 18th of June, 2019, by Dr. Elizabeth Biggs, the Lindrum Priory Library Visiting Fellow at the Durham Residential Research Library. This is the Lindrum Priory Library Fellow Lecture, presented as part of the Ushaw Lecture Series, and is entitled, Bishop Cuthbert Tunstall and Durham's Response to the Reformation. Uh, thank you, and thank you to James and to Stephen and to all of you for being here tonight to hear about Cuthbert Tunstall and Durham's response to the Reformation. I should say this project came out of my time as a ZKS fellow, where I was very much trying to use the Durham Priory Library books, both still in Durham, here at Ashur, and those that have migrated elsewhere to think about what's going on in Durham in the Reformation, and why does Durham look so different in the Reformation to anywhere else. So what I want to do tonight is to very much ask the question, what does it mean to be Catholic in the English Reformation? You know, an appropriate question for a set of talks um, organised by the Centre for Catholic Studies. Because what the, what I, the point I want to make tonight is that Cuthbert Tunstall, the monks of Durham, as a community, are offering an alternative view of Catholicism to the view of Catholicism that would become prevalent from the 1560s onward, and they're offering an alternative kind of reformation to the kind of Anglican reformation. So we're not in a world of Anglican and Catholic, we're in a world of reform, and what does that mean today? So the first thing to say is that if you look at any book on Durham, in the, um, in the Reformation, you'll find what the Elizabethan reformers said in the 1570s when they wrote south to William Cecil and people like him. Durham is backward. Durham is completely without the word of God in a, any reformed sense. That's not quite the picture we're going to get at the time when Cuthbert Tunstall is bishop from 1530 to his death in 1559. I'd also like to say that it's really quite appropriate that we're here at Ashur tonight for this talk, because Ashur is a very different version of Catholicism to that that Cuthbert Tunstall would have recognised. Of course, it comes out of that moment after 1559, when the Elizabethan settlement means that Catholicism is no longer an option in Britain. The Catholic community leaves and goes to the Low Countries, particularly, of course, to Dowry, where the first president, William Allen, as James reminded me earlier today, was consecrated Bishop of Durham in succession to Tunstall. And if the Spanish Armada had succeeded, he would have been down in the valley by the river as Bishop of Durham. Of course, that didn't happen. But the community of Durham Cathedral means a lot to Ashore when it comes back in the 19th century, which is why I've given you two of the collection items held here on the screen. The first is a book owned by Tunstall, um, the Erasmus's Paraphrases of Mark, which was clearly acquired as a kind of memory 
of him and St Cuthbert's ring, probably taken from the shrine of St Cuthbert in Durham Cathedral in the 1530s when the shrine was broken by Henry VIII's commissioners. So, Pen so Penstock, Cuthbert, Durham Cathedral before the Reformation is a very live issue for Usher and the Usher collections. It's also worth flagging up here that Usher holds the single largest collection of Durham Priory Library books outside of Durham Cathedral. So if you were to rank where the surviving books from Durham Cathedral pre-Reformation were, it would be Durham Cathedral itself, then Usher, and then it would probably be Oxford or Cambridge, depending on how you combine them. So they make a real effort in the 19th century to gather together what they can to preserve here as a memory of the Catholic past that they had lost in the 1560s when Catholicism became no longer the norm in this diocese. So who was Cuthbert Tunstall? Let's see if I can apologize. Who was Cuthbert Tunstall, Bishop of Durham, and why does he offer, I would suggest, a different kind of Catholicism and a different kind of reform? Well, he's quite simply, part of the answer is he outlasts absolutely everyone else. He's a reformer in the 1510s and 1520s when England is still Catholic, and then he lives on through the reign of Henry VIII, through the reign of Edward VI, through the Marian restoration of the 1550s to die in the first year of Elizabeth, having finally at the last refused the Elizabethan settlement. No one else of his intellectual stature, which I'll come on to explain in a minute, or his level within the English church lasts that long. When he dies in 1559, there are no bishops left who had been consecrated before the break from Rome. No one. So looking at his life and his career give us a much better picture of how someone of that type responds to the choices he's being asked to make, responds to the changing circumstances, and ultimately how those circumstances shape not just his own career, but Durham Cathedral and the community around him, and then the Diocese of Durham, which I won't really cover, but is also a part of this story. So that's part of why he's just absolutely fundamentally important. The other reason is because he is fantastically well-connected. Now, he's friends with all of the major reformers in England of the 1510s and 1520s. He's respected by the Protestant reformers of the 1530s and 1540s. He works with those who come back into England in the 1550s under Mary. So again, it's this immense range of connections that make him hugely important. And he's also just a local interest as well because he's been born in Yorkshire and he had family across Lancashire, County Durham, Northumberland, and Yorkshire. So he knows the area very well. So let's think about his scholarship and the kind of people that he's working with. He's, I've given you a picture of Erasmus of Rotterdam on the screen because he's one of Erasmus's best friends. Cuthbert Tunstall is called by Erasmus the most learned man in Europe. And if you know Erasmus and know how seriously Erasmus takes himself, that's a high, high, high praise. So he's enormously good friends with Erasmus, who is already starting to think in ways that I would suggest Tunstall will think. 
Later on, he's friends with the other major English reformers, Thomas More, John Fisher, the kind of figures who, in 1530, choose to remain Catholic, choose to not break with Rome, and end up being martyrs and saints in the Catholic tradition. So he's friends with all of them, but what kind of scholarship are these men interested in? What kind of reform program are they offering? It's based on textual scholarship. I've given you in the middle there of the screen Erasmus's New Testament in the 1519 printing. This book was at Durham. It was in the Durham Cathedral Library until the 1590s, at which point a very sticky-fingered bishop took itself to York and is now in Philadelphia. But this was Tunstall's. Erasmus sent him a copy of the New Testament. Why does this New Testament matter? Because this is cutting-edge biblical scholarship. You could not get more cutting-edge than this. And they are concerned with textual accuracy, making sure the text is absolutely right. They're re-editing the Bible, the church fathers, and the other tools that you need to do theology. So Tunstall and those around him, because the cathedral's buying this kind of stuff too, it's not just him, are giving themselves the tools to see where the Catholic Church, the medieval Catholic Church, is wrong. The medieval Catholic Church's theology is based on the Bible of Jerome. When Erasmus publishes his New Testament in 1516, and then again in 1519, he's showing up all of the textual errors on which a lot of medieval theology have been based. So they're interested in reform because they can see in the text the need for reform, but they're all Catholic. You know, this is 1516, 1519. Luther isn't yet really on the picture. They want reform, but they're not going as far as he does. They're also interested in biblical traditions. Um, one of Tensor's chaplains will help edit biblical texts. Tensor himself edits one of the church fathers. Um, they're into uh, and about, there's this lovely um, moment, which I always like bringing up. I don't have a photograph of it, unfortunately. Tunstall's thanked by Erasmus for his help in an edition of St. Ambrose of Milan, who's one of the major church fathers. And a Durham monk in Durham's copy has written, this is Tunstall, the most learned bishop of London, now bishop of Durham. So there's this little pride in the Durham monastic community for their bishop. They're very happy to have him, and they're just as interested in this stuff as he is. And so why is Tunstall sent to North? Oh, sorry, this is... Uh, it was going to be something technical, wasn't it? <laughs> why was Tunstall sent North? In 1530, he was absolutely at the centre of London's court religious world. He'd been master of the roles for about eight years. He'd been chancellor to Archbishop Warren. He'd been Bishop of London and on the front lines of heresy trials in London in the 1520s. Well, the answer comes because he's being awkward. He is with Moore and Fisher, one of the people advising Catherine of Aragon, who I can use a picture up here, on her side of the great divorce case. Henry VIII is using absolutely every means possible to convince the papacy and everyone else that his marriage to Catherine is illegitimate. Moore, Fisher, and Tunstall are saying, hang on a second, this isn't quite right. Tunstall is sent north to get him out of this. No, he's... I think he's also sent north just as much because they need someone who knows the north. 
and who can run the Diocese of Durham, but it's certainly convenient to get him out of the way. And the... Sorry. Um, apologies. Um, oh, yes, the other thing I want to mention here, because I think it's relevant for thinking about Tunstall's thought sort of on the eve of him turning up in Durham, is that in the 1520s, William Tyndale, the first um, translator of the Bible into English, approaches Tunstall for his support for translation of the Bible. He clearly thinks that Tunstall, interested in biblical scholarship, interested in getting the most accurate version of the text, as widely available as possible, will be interested. Um, Tunstall says no, but he's sort of, it's not about a translation of the Bible into English is heresy. That's not the concern. The concern is Tunstall can't financially support it and sort of fobs him off with a, I hope you find someone else. But he then, when Tyndale does publish, he preaches against it and doesn't like it. But again, it's errors in the text that he's concerned about, not the actual project. So we can see here, again, this is not the kind of Catholicism that we would see in the 1560s. This is a reforming Catholicism that's open to this kind of thing. Fortunately for him, when he sent North to Durham in the spring of 1530, after the death of Thomas Wolsey, he finds a cathedral community that is very congenial, that, exact, that gets exactly what he wants to do. What was Durham like in the spring of 1530? Well, it was still a monastic community at full strength. About 60-odd monks were still in the community. They were still sending every year monastic students to Durham College in Oxford, and all of the senior people within the community held higher degrees in theology. So he's finding a community that are interested in the kinds of theological questions he's in, that have the kind of scholarship and training in scholarship that he's interested in, and they've been buying books like mad. They really have. If you, think of, if you look at the intunable collection of Durham Cathedral Library today, it is full of the books that the monks are buying in Oxford and elsewhere in this period. And they're buying all the same kinds of things Tunstall himself is interested in. They're buying science books. They're buying biblical scholarship. They're buying history. They're buying theology. No. This is a community that will look at Tunstall and say, yes. Oh, and they also hate Thomas Wolsey, so he must have been a much, much more friendly figure. Um, there's a book in Ashura College here which has a little comment saying, Wolsey's terrible. Why? <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't like him. So they, they get him, in, they get Tunstall instead. What kind of things are they reading? Um, what kind of things are they reading? This is, um, I love this, I put it in every time I can. You can see the little, it's written by one of the monks of Durham in the 1520s. Not only are they buying printed books, they also still have some tradition of manuscript books, and this is one of the last examples we know of, 1527, a monk called William Todd makes this book. And it's a fascinating collection, but he's given him a little picture of a Durham monk in the bottom margin. So imagine that's the 60-yard of those in the cathedral down there. So what kind of things are they reading? They're already buying an interesting anti-Lutheran material that's been circulating. One of the monks, Richard Maudley, spends quite a lot of time annotating a book which is now 
in Ashar um, about all of the ways in which Luther is completely wrong. Um, they're buying humanist editions by people like Erasmus, music to Tunstall's ears, this is exactly the kind of thing he likes. And perhaps most interestingly, they're thinking about what reformed monasticism could be. We tend to think of the reformers of the 1510s and 1520s within Catholicism as coming from the universities. You know, people like John Collett, Dean of St. Paul's, who's really concerned about Oxford and Cambridge. But we've also got people writing about what could monasticism look like in a reformed world, you know, if we got rid of indulgences, if we got rid of the kind of ways in which the papacy is being problematic. And Durham monks are buying this stuff. They're reading it and they're annotating it. So we can see them thinking through the same kinds of intellectual questions of reform that Tunstall himself is interested in without in any way being Lutheran. You know, they anti-Lutheran, but reformers. And that's a mold of Catholicism that Tunstall and the monks of Durham are going to keep up right through to the 1550s. But this isn't going to last. In 1554, the king breaks, well, 1553, the king breaks with Rome. 1534, the act of supremacy asks everyone in England to say whether they're willing to accept that break with Rome and accept the king as the head of the church in England. Tunstall spends quite a lot of time dithering. It's not entirely sure if he's going to sign or not. People get quite worried. But as you can see here, he does at last sign. March 1535, that's the original now in the National Archives in London with his signature, in which he accepts that the king is supreme head of the church in England. What exactly is he agreeing to with this? It's not wholesale Protestant reform. It is saying the Pope is not the head of the church in England. Now that becomes very interesting in the following year, in 1536, when we start to get a sense of what that act of supremacy means to Tunstall through a couple of different things. The first is spearheaded by the man on the right, Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell in 1536 orders a visitation of all the monasteries in England to find out what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, most of what they're doing wrong. You know, he, his commissioners are anti-monastic, but they like Durham. They turn up in Durham and they write lots of enthusiastic things back. What do they write about Tunstall himself? Tunstall himself had preached and set forth the primacy in his diocese with substantial learning. I'm quoting directly. The entire diocese is united in the utter abolishment of the Bishop of Rome. So it's purely and simply about whether or not the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, has any authority in England. That is the one specific thing Tunstall has agreed to and that he has set loose in his diocese. He has said to his diocese and they've agreed with him. Thomas Cromwell's commissioner goes on to say that... Cromwell should get Tunstall to write a book about this because many learned men hangeth much on his judgment and if everywhere was like Durham, where Tunstall has done this, the country would be in great shape. So in 1536, Durham's ahead of everybody else in a specific form of reformation, which is that the Bishop of Rome is no longer a primate. When we see what that means a bit more clearly 
later in 1536, when the man on the right, Reginald Poole, writes an open letter to Henry VIII demanding that he return the Church of England to the Roman obedience. Tunstall's the man who's tasked with answering this letter. And what Tunstall says in that open letter is the papacy as it currently stands in 1536 is corrupt. It is not what it should be. He's quoting the church fathers to say things about what the church should look like. And again, it's very clear he's thinking of England still as within a Catholic church, but a Catholic church that does not answer to Rome. So again, reform within the church, not Protestant, but certainly not willing to go to the papacy. And in a book that Durham... No, I and in a book that is in Durham Cathedral Library today, I've given you a terrible frontispiece from a much later book, we can again see how the monks of Durham and how Tunstall himself are thinking this through. They're looking to history. They're looking to the 15th century schisms, the divisions between the church and the, council, and the movement of councils that try to constrain the power of the papacy. So they're saying the church is everyone within the church. It does not have to come from the Pope. And in the copy of um, Jean Gerson, the 15th century theorist, who was a Gallican, which Margaret Harvey has called Tunstall a Gallican, and she's absolutely right there. You know, he's very much thinking in that mode. He goes even further because he's, he's willing to push beyond where the Gallicans were. But he's going to use the church fathers. He's going to look at the Eastern Church. Remember, the Eastern Church is broken off in schism in much earlier in the Middle Ages. Well, he's going to say, actually, Jerusalem was meant to be the head of the church. He says that to his other bishops. They are going, no, we're not going there. Stop it. But he does, that's, he does say that. And he says it in front of the king as well. Easter Sunday sermon, 1539, he says, Jerusalem, by the Council of Nicaea, was to be the head of the church. It doesn't matter what the Pope thinks. We're still within the Catholic Church. No, no guesses to what Henry VIII thought of that particular <laughs> plan, but he does make that argument. And that's an argument that we can see the monks of Durham also making. They are underlining this kind of stuff. They are saying in their books, what is the basis of the church? What does it mean to be Catholic? Does it mean, as Paul is asking them to think, that the church is headed by the papacy, or is there a possibility for a Catholic church that is not headed by the papacy, that is looking to those reforming movements of the 1510s and the 1520s? And they keep on thinking that way. But this is, becomes a bit of a moot point, because from 1536 to 1539, Thomas Cromwell is, of course, dissolving the monasteries. And Tunstall spends most of those years working with the prior Hugh Whitehead and the community to protect as much as, the, as they can of Durham's wealth and influence in its diocese. They do things like clever land swaps to protect the land from the king. They give annuities to people like Thomas Cromwell so that they won't take the lands. They're paying people off, basically. And they're doing quite a lot of careful maneuvering to protect Durham Cathedral. So that when, in 1539, on December 31st, the axe falls and Durham is no longer a Benedictine community, the house and all its lands are surrendered into the king's hands, the king will turn around and in 1541 refound Durham Cathedral as a secular 
cathedral. So like it is today, it will have a set of canons, at that time 12, now 4, and a set of vicars, choral and choristers, and so on. So, but, and they seem to have held on to the lands in that interim period because of these clever land swaps and they haven't annoyed the king. And Tunstall's very much involved in that moment. And from then on, in 1541, when the cathedral is reconstituted as a secular cathedral, which just means priests rather than monks, the community is completely filled with former monks. All of the men who have those doctorates in theology are kept on, more or less, to be the first community. So there's extraordinary continuity. And those men stay on into the 1550s, 1560s. The last of them doesn't die until the 1590s. So there's an extraordinarily long monastic presence within Durham. And I think that helps to keep Durham's interests in reform, but not Protestantism going. Of course, there's outside influence here from this man on the right, Robert Horn. In 1551, Horn becomes Dean of Durham. He's a Puritan. He's very much in favour with Edward VI. And he, and it's at this moment, we really start to see Durham's monuments being torn down. The, of course, yeah. Um, apologies. Um, as the rights of Durham, I've given you one of the many manuscripts of the rights of Durham on here. As the rights of Durham tell us, Horn is the one who takes down the statues and starts really trying to remake the cathedral into a Protestant run. Tunstall is under house arrest in London at this time. But that is... Um, no. That, that's sort of the interlude where Tunstall's out of favour and reform and reformation really looks like what we would expect it to look like, but Horn's very much on his own and the monks are still there. They're just called canons. In 1553, fortunately for the monks at Durham, Mary I comes to the throne and immediately says England would become Catholic again. And the monks of Durham seem to have a bit of a moment of, wait, we could go back to becoming monks. We could go, you know, 30 years on, well, 20 years on since they'd signed away the monasticism in Durham Cathedral. One of the canons turned monks goes back to one of those books about what monasticism could be in the 15, 1510s and puts the date in and re-signs his name in it. So John Tuting, in 1553, seems to have a very serious hope at the least, maybe more, maybe even um, a plan that Durham might become monastic, might go back to the kind of reform. And of course, by 1553, the Council of Trent has already begun its proceedings. So not only might Durham go back to monasticism, but Durham might be part of much wider trends that would bring those reforms that they were so interested in, that they're still leading, into the community. But, of course, the Council of Trent ends up going in a different direction, and so the Tridentine Catholicism is not the Catholicism of Erasmus. But in 1553, that's still a live hope, and that seems to be very much a live hope for John Tutte and his companions. 
But one of the other interesting things that happens in Durham during the 1550s in Mary's reign is again that interest in biblical scholarship, that interest in kind of thinking about Catholicism quite broadly, because Tunstall protects Bernard Gilpin, who may be a name some of you know. He's also, for the 1570s, he's known as the Apostle of the North. He's, a, he's very much a Puritan. He's very much in a very different tradition. But most of his books end up in Queen's College, Oxford, and they're interested in exactly the same kind of things Tunstall is. You know, he's got the multilingual uh, biblical text. He's thinking about textual accuracy. He's thinking about the right range of scholarship. And under Mary's reign, Tunstall is protecting him. He's actively trying to get him a position in Durham Cathedral. He's also his nephew. So there's family ties here. There's good old nepotism at work. But there's also quite clearly a shared sense of scholarly purpose. And Tunstall very much thinking quite widely about what he's going to do. And I mean, the Gilpin gets into trouble with Edmund Bonner, Bishop of London to the point where only a broken leg possibly saves him from being tried and then executed for heresy under Mary. So, you know, this is, we're not talking minor theological disagreements here. We're talking protecting someone who the regime is not going to be happy with. Again, for those reasons of reforming Catholicism, I would suggest. The, I'm conscious of time, so one, one more sort of, point on the Marian moment. Reginald Poole, who Tunstall had feuded with in the 1530s over um, what Catholicism meant, is of course Cardinal Legate of England for Mary and Archbishop of Canterbury. And the program Poole wants to bring to the cathedrals in the 1550s, that they should be seminaries for priests, that they should house schools, that they should be centers of diocesan learning, looks exactly like the kind of program Tunstall has been advocating for since the 1530s, and that uh, Poole is going to try and push through at Trent. Poole dies in 1558, so isn't able to do that. But suddenly at Durham, not only is monasticism a possibility, but the kind of reform they've wanted is a possibility. So how then do we go from a Durham cathedral where all of these Catholic ideas are a possibility and are being actively pursued to the situation where the Catholic community comes back to Ashaw? Well, the story sort of the story begins for this final section in November 1558, when on the same day, Mary I and Cardinal Poole die in London. And once again, Tunstall and the community here are faced with choices, the same kind of choices they faced in the 1530s, and then again under Edward in the 1540s. What does it mean to be Catholic? Can you conform to the Church of England while being Catholic? And this time, they make very different choices. In 1559, Tunstall does not go south to Elizabeth I's coronation. Traditionally, the Bishop of Durham, of course, is one of the two bishops who stand on either side of the monarch at their coronation. The reason, official reason given is he's too old. He's in his 80s. You know, he's been in Durham pretty much constantly for the last five or six years. 
we'll let him stay in the north. But it seems that there's real doubts in London about whether or not Tunstall will turn up, if he's going to be awkward. What, what, what does this look like? So he's, they, don't, they avoid the question, he doesn't turn up. But in the summer of 1559, he slowly makes his way south. He asks for a meeting with the Queen. They meet. Um, neither of them seem too happy about it. We don't know particular. There's no minutes. There's no kind of sense of what they discussed. But Tunstall writes a letter a few days later asking for a second meeting, saying that, you know, not sure about this. What you know, what I can do. And it matters hugely to Elizabeth's government because Tunstall is the last bishop left who had been consecrated under her father. There is no one else left. So if there's any kind of apostolic succession in the English church, they need him. They also know that he's enormously well-respected across Europe. So if he lends his weight to their cause and is willing to accept the Elizabethan settlement, that will be a fairly serious you know, point in their favour. So they're willing, you know, they're going to talk to him and see what he can do. He seems to decide, no. He never, he does not accept the Elizabethan settlement, as far as we know. He's put under house arrest in the custody of Archbishop Parker, Matthew Parker, um, who would have known him since 1520. So, you know, it's, it's a very nice house arrest, but it's still house arrest. He's deprived of the Bishopric of Durham in September 1559, and he dies under house arrest still at Lambeth in November 1559. Uh, he's buried at Lambeth Parish, Parish Church. It's now the Garden Museum, and you can see it there on the, my right. Uh, my left, sorry, on the right. But, but there's a, he's buried at, at Lambeth, and one of Parker's chaplains gives the funeral sermon, and he seems to have chosen a very ambiguous text for it, because he preaches, according to Hollinshed, on the text, Blessed are they who die in the Lord, trying quite hard, I suspect, to give the impression that Tunstall was willing to say that Elizabethan, the Elizabethan settlement was actually acceptable within his ideas of reforming Catholicism. But everyone else um, who comments on the funeral says, you know, today was buried Tunstall, a bishop of Rome. So he's, um, he hasn't confessed. But Alexander Noel knows he has to do a pretty decent job because this is a heavyweight of the Reformation. So he extols his virtues and his learning such that the Puritan commentator in the 1580s says, well, you know, you have to be nice even to your enemies. He, but he did, a, he did a good job, apparently. And Noel's interesting because he and Parker go back to Cambridge together. So not only is this one of Parker's chaplains, this is one of Parker's closest associates, preaching on a very ambiguous text about someone who's had very ambiguous views in terms of what the Elizabethan settlement is going to look like, even if his, his, view, his Catholic views look much more straightforward. But what happens at Durham? The bishop is gone from, 1550, from the spring of 1559, and the Durham monks turned canons are faced with the same choice. The Tunstallers, will they accept? No, they don't. 
about half of the cathedral community who are still 75% ex-monks. There's been extraordinarily low turnover in the ranks of the cathedral. Say no, they choose deprivation rather than signing on to the Elizabethan settlement. And that is why so many of the books are here at Ashaw, actually. It's because two of those canons, ex-monks turned canons, Stephen Marley and Nicholas Marley, their brothers, choose when they leave to take cartloads, as far as we can tell, of books with them. And those cartloads of books cover a huge range of subjects that have been entirely different talk to talk about trying unpicking what the Marleys were interested in. Ian Doyle and Alan Piper did some of that work, but there's still more, I think, that could be said about it. But they bring the books to their family home at Gibside, to the Tempest family, who later and more famously lived at Stella, which is the black and white photograph here. It was pulled down in the, 50, in the 1950s, which is why there's only this kind of very old, quite grainy photographs of it. But they bring books there. Those books then move into Catholic recusant circles. The Tempests are recusant, and they pass them on as kind of treasured memories of when Durham Cathedral was Catholic. And so they become sort of fossilised as a Catholic past within the recusant communities. And then many of the books that were Tempest books go into the Catholic parishes when they start being formed after the relaxation of the anti-Catholic laws and then are deposited in Ashur as long-term loans in the 1950s. So that's why the Durham Priory collections here are so strong, is because when you're faced with a choice in 1559, they say the reforming Catholicism that they have championed is no longer possible. They will no longer submit to the Church of England and they leave with the books. But um, just as a, a conscious of time, so one last. Um, this is a book at Ashore College now, probably one of those cartloads of books taken by the Marleys. But it's an interesting book in many ways because even... You know, at that moment when they're saying Catholicism is not compatible with the church in England as constituted by Elizabeth, they're willing to take this with them. This is a scientific book. It's about the movement of the planets. It's a fairly, it's interesting for lots of reasons, but it was published in Wittenberg in 1552. And not only was it published in Wittenberg, it was dedicated to the reformer Philip Melanchthon, one of the strongest post-Lutheran reformers of a very strong Protestant tradition that is absolutely, utterly at odds with everything the Catholic community at Durham was interested in. But for scientific interest, not only did they did Robert Dalton, the canon who owned this, buy it, annotate it, and seemingly not particularly care that it was dedicated to Melanchthon, he or one of the Marleys took it with them in 1559 when they're leaving the cathedral community for the last time. And to, so in 1559, the Durham community and Tunstall finally say Catholicism within the Church of England is at an end. But the final last gasp of hope for Catholicism at Durham Cathedral comes 10 years later in the Northern Rebellion, which Stephen mentioned, when in 
At the start of that rebellion, they hold a Catholic mass in Durham Cathedral itself. And one of the monks, William Bennett, turns up in the monastic habit that he has put away for 30 years. I don't know if it was his, whether he dug it out of some kind of store cupboard, or whether he's just been holding on to it as a hope. But in 1569, again, with the failure of the Catholic of the Northern Rebellion, all hopes of any kind of performing Catholicism at Durham Cathedral end. And with that, I will finish this talk. Thank you.